Well, I always consider it uh, a blessing and an honor to be able to preach here at PT. I especially consider it uh, uh, a blessing to preach here today. We just had a prayer time for Honduras. Uh, and as you, many of you know, uh, my wife and I, Elisa, we're the ones who uh, head up the global outreach here. We'll be going on that trip to Honduras. And I'm here this morning to let you know that that is really just part of a bigger plan that God has for our church. So, you know, we prayed for Honduras this month. Last month, we prayed for Haiti. Uh, we're going to be having a silent auction after church. We've got some other countries we're, we're involved with, we're going to be praying with over the future. And I, this morning, I want to help you see what parts you play in this big plan that God has. And the central concept we need to understand this morning is God's glory. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about God's glory. Uh, on one level, God's glory is his reputation. If a person has glory... She has honor, she has value, she has worth. And this is a big part of God's glory as well. Uh, as the psalmist writes in Psalm 96, he writes, Sing to the Lord, bless his name, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the people. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. God has done great things. I said, God has done great things. And for this, we give him praise. We give him glory. In this sense, glory is, as Bishop has said many times, credit. God deserves the glory, the credit for what he has done. But there is more to God's glory than just giving him credit. You see, when God met Moses on Mount Sinai and he gives them the Ten Commandments, the Bible records that in Exodus chapter, four, the, Exodus chapter 24, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. The appearance of the glory. Well, last, thing, last time I checked, it took more than a good reputation to set a mountain on fire. When Solomon builds the first temple in Jerusalem and he consecrates it, the presence of God is so strong that in 1 Kings chapter 8, it records that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Last I checked, it took more than a nice song to fill a room so full that people couldn't enter it. See, the glory of God is more than just the credit God gets for doing great things. It is also part of his nature. Like holiness and love, glory is part of who God is. There is something intrinsic about God, something that makes God, God. And in our best moments, we glimpse it. And it's majestic, it's beautiful, it's awesome. And that thing is God's glory. And that glory, once we have seen it, it becomes the desire of our heart. 
You see, after God had led the Israelites through the wilderness, Moses' one request of God was, God, please show me your glory. After all the great things God had done, freeing the Israelites from bondage, parting the Red Sea, meeting with Moses on Mount Sinai, after all that, the desire of Moses' heart, the one thing he felt would complete him, that would fulfill him, was seeing God's glory. That's how important God's glory is. So what is this glory that the Bible is talking about? And why is it so important to what we are doing right now? Well, rather than just to try to explain this with words, uh, this morning I want to give you an illustration, a visual metaphor for God's glory. So to start with, uh, I want you to consider uh, this bouquet of flowers. Okay? These flowers have glory. They have beauty. They have worth. They have a certain dignity about them. They even have a reputation. If I have any husbands in the room, can I get an amen if you know that flowers can help your reputation? If I've got any unmarried brothers in the room, a little secret, word to the wise, if you want to get some credit with that special someone, flowers are a good place to start. Because glory is part of the nature of these flowers. It is essential. It is intrinsic to what it means to be a flower. Nothing that is not a flower can possess a flower's glory. You know, I could take this book, it's a nice book, and I could try to transfer the glory of the flowers onto this book. I could rub the book on the flowers. I could write about flowers in the book. I could take some flower petals and glue them to the outside of the book, but it wouldn't be the same. Because the glory of the flowers is unique to the flowers. Nothing else can possess the flower's glory. And the glory of God is like the glory of the flowers. It is unique to God. It is part of who God is. And nothing else can have a glory that is quite like the glory of our God. And that glory is so beautiful, so majestic, so amazing that in our heart of hearts, we seek it. Like Moses, we want to see God's glory, to know him intimately in the fullness of that glory. Because in that glory, we find something that fulfills us, something that makes us whole. We were made to seek God's glory. But we have a problem. And that problem is sin. And as many of you know, sin is nothing more than separation from God. When we choose sin, we choose to operate independent from God. So when the serpent was tempting Eve in the garden, he told her in Genesis chapter 3 that if she ate of the fruit, quote, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, he tempted her basically by saying, you don't need to seek God's glory. You can be like God all by yourself. Now, it was a lie. God's glory is unique to God. We cannot make ourselves like God. It was a lie. But Eve fell for it. 
And we fall for it too. We think we can take the glory that God has given us, either in ourselves or in his creation. We think we can take that glory and use it for our purposes. And when we do that, sin enters. And when we sin, we separate some of God's glory from him. Every time we choose sin, instead of seeking God's glory, we separate a little bit of his glory from him. As Paul said, claiming to be wise, we become fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. But you know, we serve a bad God. I said, we serve a bad God. Because, you know, devil thought he was tricky. Devil thought he was smart introducing sin into the world. But I'm going to tell you something. Ain't no devil in hell smart enough to pull one over on our God. And so I have a demonstration. So this uh, is an air launcher. I made it at home this week. My kids helped me test it out. And this air launcher uh, is going to demonstrate uh, God's plan. Uh. Now, this is the part of the sermon where I tell you that I work at MIT, and so no one is going to get injured or harmed in this demonstration, but don't try this at home. Because the devil helped to introduce sin into the world, and sin separates some of God's glory from him. And so God said, all right, all right, fine, devil. You want to separate some of my glory from me? That's fine. Because it's not like the devil can steal God's glory. The glory always belongs to God. So God said, fine, you want to separate some of my glory from me? Let's do that. Let's separate some of my glory from me. Shall we? Shall we separate some of God's glory Because the heavens declare the glory of God. And the skies above proclaim his handiwork. The earth is filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. You see, in response to human sin, God voluntarily sent his glory out into the world through the nation of Israel, through the prophets, through Jesus, through his disciples, through his Holy Spirit. God spread his glory out into the world that he is rescuing. And so when we seek God's glory, we don't just seek it up here at the altar. We can seek it in the world because God's glory is everywhere. And when we find that glory, we have a task. And that task is to bring the glory back to God. (laughs) 
We are not giving God glory because the glory is not ours. The glory belongs to God. It has only gotten separated. It has gotten lost. It has wandered away from its source. We get to bring it back. That is our purpose. And so in 10 minutes or less, that's it. Uh, that's my, that's basically my sermon. In fact, that's basically God's whole plan for creation because the last book of the Bible is revelation. And I don't want to ruin the ending for you, but in the end, all the glory is going back to God. In the end, when Jesus comes on clouds of glory, the angels will fall down and sing hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor belong to our God. And we get to be part of making that happen. That is our purpose. We are to seek God's glory and we are to bring God glory. And I hope my visual illustration will help you remember that purpose. And I mean, I, I really, really hope that this will help you remember the, your purpose because I have made quite a mess. <laughs> and after this sermon, I'm going to be spending quite a bit of time cleaning up God's glory from the floor of the sanctuary. <laughs> and so if this did not help you remember your purpose, I might be a little bitter. But seriously, to unpack this idea, uh, I want to tell you about three things that God's glory teaches us. And they all start with P. That's our favorite letter here at PT, P. God's glory helps us understand our purpose, our problem, and our potential. Our purpose, our problem, and our potential. Okay? So first things first, our purpose Well, I actually already told you this one. Our purpose is to seek God's glory. Now, it's important to recognize that we already have a word for this process. When we seek God's glory, we are worshiping him. Worship, by definition, is the process of glorifying God. And this is crucial because we were created to worship God. It is our purpose our reason for existing. Just as a hammer exists to drive nails, we exist to worship God. When God first created man in Genesis chapter 1, he said, let us make man in our image. This is the way that God originally intended us to be. He intended us to be his image. And in the original Hebrew, that word image is selem. And selem as it turns out, is the same one as the one used for, the, for an idol, a statue or painting or object that people would use as an instrument of worship toward a god. And so when God made us his Salem, he was making us an instrument of worship toward him. He was creating something that would seek his glory. Your purpose is to glorify God in worship. It is who you were meant to be. So when we press into God in prayer, we are seeking God's glory. 
When we sing songs like, I want to touch you, I want to see your face, I want to know you more, we are seeking that intimate knowledge of God's glory. But if we limit ourselves to thinking of worship as what happens here in this sanctuary, it creates kind of a funny problem. I was talking to one of my non-Christian friends about this, and he put it this way. He said, all right, let me see if I get this straight. First, God created us to worship him. And second, worship, apparently, amounts to us flattering God telling him how good he looks and how great he is. So then doesn't that make God kind of self-centered? And of course, you know, being the great Christian apologist I am, I said, because my friend had a point. We make it sound like God was not happy being the omnipotent, all-knowing creator of the universe. Like somehow he needed to create us, people who would suck up to him and tell him how great he is and how perfect he is. He couldn't just, he just wanted to hear more and more and more about himself. We make God sound self-centered. We make God sound insecure. We make God sound like Kanye. guys are so fun. All right. But the point is that if God's sole purpose for creating us was to have someone who would say nice things about him, he's either got a huge ego problem or he's vastly, vastly insecure. Kanye. The problem is that we have a human idea of what it means to glorify God. We think that God needs our attention in the same way that Kanye needs our attention. You see, Kanye's only famous, he only has glory because people listen to him and pay attention to him. If nobody bought his albums or listened to his songs or went to his concerts or bought his clothes, he would cease to be relevant. He would cease to have glory. Because all of Kanye's glory is extrinsic. It doesn't belong to Kanye. The glory that Kanye gets is the glory that we give to him. God's glory, on the other hand, is intrinsic. It's like the glory of the flowers. It is uniquely and only his. God's glory doesn't depend on us. When Jesus came, he taught those around him that if the people had remained silent at his coming, the rocks and stones themselves would have cried out to bring God glory. God does not need any additional glory because all the glory already belongs to him. God doesn't need our glory. We need God's glory. In seeking his glory, we are fulfilled. You see, we were designed to seek God's glory not just with our words, but with our whole lives. As Paul wrote in his letter to the Corinthians, 
Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So whether I am eating or praying or painting or writing or speaking, whatever I do, Paul says I am to do it to the glory of God. And this sounds good in theory, but in practice, Paul's instructions seem kind of vague. I mean, how am I, I know I'm, how I'm supposed to glorify God if I'm singing a praise song. You know, I'm supposed to put my hands up like this and do some things. But how do I glorify God when I am watching a movie or when I am driving my car? And if this seems hard to us, it is simply because we are out of practice. We haven't spent enough time seeking God's glory. You see, in every situation you are in, you can always ask the question, where is God's glory in this? When I am stuck in traffic, help me, Jesus, where is God's glory in this? When I am giving a presentation, where is God's glory in this? When you get the job, hallelujah, where is God's glory in this? When you don't get the job, where is God's glory in this? Because God's glory is in every situation that you find yourself. And your purpose is to seek that glory. Not because God needs the glory, because you do. So that's the first point about God's glory. Our purpose is to glorify God in worship. Okay, so that's our purpose. But we have a central problem as human beings. Even though we were created to worship God, we have a nasty habit of directing our worship toward other things. And we have this problem because of who we are. You see, God created us in his own image, in his Salem. He created us as instruments of worship. Worship is who we are. Worship is an involuntary reflex for us. It is like breathing. You can just as soon stop breathing as you can stop worshiping. Whether you like it or not, your life is going to generate worship because of the Selem, the image that God has placed within you. And so the question isn't, are you a worshiper or are you not a worshiper? You are a worshiper. The question isn't, do you worship? The question is, What do you worship? Is your worship directed to God or is part of your worship going somewhere else? And you see, the Bible gives us very dire warnings about directing even a small portion of our worship to anything but God. It even gives it a scary name. It calls it idolatry. Anytime we direct some of our worship to something other than God, we are practicing idolatry. We are making an idol, a Salem, out of something that is less than God. And throughout the Old Testament, God pleaded with his people to direct all their worship toward him. Through the prophet Isaiah, uh, in chapter 46, he contrasted worship of false gods, like Bel and Nebo, uh, some idols common in the Old Testament, to worship of the one true God. This is what Isaiah writes. He writes, Bel bows down 
Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens for weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and I will save. You see here, God vividly illustrates how idols, the physical statues are burdens, both to the animals that have to carry them and to the people who worship them. By contrast, God is the exact opposite. Instead of being a burden that the Israelites must carry, he is instead the one who has carried them from the womb. He is the one who will carry and will save. God is glorified not because we lift him up, but because he lifts us up. Amen. You see, ultimately, idolatry is bondage. It is slavery to the thing that you idolize. And God wants to set his people free, free to direct their worship to the one true God who can lift them up and fulfill them. Now, you might think that idolatry is not a big problem for you. After all, you probably don't have a statue of Bell in your car or an altar to Nebo in your bedroom. If you do, just look down. (laughs) But you see, Bel was the patron god of the nation of Babylon. And so when people worshipped Bel, they were actually worshipping their nation. Nebo was the patron saint of writing and wisdom. And so when people gave glory to Nebo, they were actually glorifying education and intelligence. Asherah was another idol of the Old Testament. She was the patron goddess of fertility, both relating to childbearing and the growing of crops. And so when people gave glory to Asherah, they were actually glorifying success and prosperity. So let's see here. We've got our nation, glorifying our nation, uh, wisdom, education, success, and prosperity. Sure sounds to me like worship of Bel and Nebo and Asherah are alive and well today. We just don't have the statues anymore. If you don't spend your time consciously seeking the glory of God, your worship will unconsciously flow to other things because you are a worshiper. Whether you worship success or security or pleasure or something else entirely, your worship of that thing, your idolatry, will eventually become a burden to you. And consciously directing your worship toward God is what will set you free. Now, idolatry is kind of a big guilt trip. Uh, How many, you know, it's not very much fun to preach entire sermons about idolatry. And indeed, the guilt we feel over idolatry often fails to set us free. Indeed, guilt typically just leads us to more bondage. And so this morning, instead of focusing on yourself and feeling guilty, I want you to think about the people you hang around with. What do they worship? What are their idols? The people in your family, the people at your work, the people in your culture, what do they idolize? 
I'm going to give you, I'm, you know, like a good teacher, I'm going to give you guys 10 seconds to think about that question. What do the people around you idolize? All right. And now that you have something in your mind, I want you to understand that God will often use the people around you, sinners though they may be, he may use them to set you free. Because the idols that tempt them are very likely the same idols that tempt you. The idols that they serve are very likely the same idols that you serve or once did. And I want you to consider that maybe, just maybe, God has put you into that group of people in order to help them turn their worship away from that idol and toward God. Because God's purpose is for you to go into that group of people and seek God's glory. His glory is already there. You just need to help turn that glory back to God. Because in helping your peers defeat their idols, God can also help you defeat the idols within yourself. So that is the second point. Our problem is idolatry. And that brings me to my third point, my final point about God's glory. Once we have gone out into the world seeking God's glory, and after we have found it, we realize our potential by bringing that glory back to God. The glory that began with God and has always belonged to him, we get to bring it back. And in, in doing that, we become part of God's mission and right now, what God is doing here in PT is he is helping PT to realize our potential in mission. Because you see, that mission is much bigger than PT. It is much bigger than Cambridge. It is bigger than North America because God has sent his glory into the whole world. And we get to play a part in bringing that glory back. Amen. See, we just... This morning, prayed for Honduras. We prayed for children we work with who, there who have so little. We prayed for the end of drug trafficking and violence. We prayed for peace in the cities. We prayed for the restoration of families. And we've done more than pray. This year, we'll send our fifth team of volunteers to serve and teach and work there. And we aren't doing all these things just because we want Honduras to be a nicer place to live. We are doing it because we believe that God has some glory in the nation of Honduras and we get to play a part in bringing that glory back to God. And you know, I really shouldn't have to spend a whole section of my sermon on this because you already know this. It's the mission of PT. How many of you guys know the PT's mission? Actually, no, wait, no, 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 don't put your hands up. Don't. Because you all know PT's mission. Because we sing it every Sunday. Come on now, sing it with me. Welcome, welcome to Pentecostal Tabernacle. Da, 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 da. Okay, hold on. Second verse here, guys. Jeez, all right. The first verse is all right. So we'll just go from the beginning. All right, try again. Welcome, welcome to Pentecostal Tabernacle where Jesus Christ abides. Welcome, welcome to Pentecostal Tabernacle. Ah, very nice. 
So for those of you who are first-time guests, that sounds a lot better with the band. <laughs> but that last line there, restoring broken lives, that's our mission. But did, how many of you guys actually know that that's actually only the short form of our mission? We have a, a longer form. The short form's easier to remember, but the longer form, I had to look it up on the website to get the wording right. Our, our full mission is this. PT exists to restore lives broken by the consequences of sin to the place where those very same lives, wait for it, where those very same lives bring glory to God. Our ultimate mission is to bring glory to God. And the main place we find that glory is in the lives of people. And this can actually be kind of hard because it can seem highly unlikely that God is ever going to get any kind of glory out of some people's lives. See, I used to work, uh, volunteer with an organization called Starlight Ministries that did uh, outreach to the homeless on Boston Common. So we would go out every Wednesday night uh, and we would give food and clothes to whoever wanted it. We would close up the evening with a worship circle. And there was one particular guest that we had often who's, who I will call Hostile Hal. Now, Hal was an ex-con uh, and he had a drinking problem and he was, you know, permanently out on the street. And good Lord, could that man swear. He was like the Picasso of cursing. He could curse out people who weren't even there, people he met like months ago. He could curse their mothers, their grandmothers, their great-great-grandmothers. And he could go on like that for, you know, 10, 20, 30 minutes at a time. And so it should come as no surprise that Hostel Hal was often shall we say, verbally abusive toward volunteers like me. You know, I'd come up to him and I'd offer him some food, free food, and he'd say like, why would I want in your blankety-blank food, you blankety-blank-blank, blank-blank-blank-blank-blank? You know the problem with your blankety-blank food is you blankety-blanks to put enough blank and salt in your blank and food. If I want any blank and food, I would go to blank and McDonald's. That's what I would do. Blankety-blank-blank-blank-blank. I would have blankety-blank my blank-blank in your blank-blank, blankety-blank-blank, blank-blank-blank. And you laugh, but that was the abbreviated version. Because he could just go and go and go for 20 minutes at a time, completely unprovoked. And so it was tough to see how God was ever going to get any glory out of someone like Hal. He was a mess. His, he was mean. He was spiteful. He was rude. And he had no interest in getting his life together. But God put a burden on my heart for Hal. Lucky me. <laughs> and so every week when we went there, yes, we were there to hand out clothes and food to lots of people, but my mission was one person, Hal. And I discovered something. Every week I would go over and I would talk to Hal, and I discovered that after 20 or 30 minutes of cursing, after that, Hal would settle down. And he would talk about the things that were on his mind, about the things that made him want to get his life together. He talked about the family he was separated from. One night, I even got so far as to get Hal to stick around for the worship time. Worship time. Now, he didn't actually participate. He sort of sat to the side. He might have been swearing under his breath. But he was there. 
And now in the end, I don't know what happened to Hal. At some point, he just stopped coming. And I miss him. I miss him because he was my friend. But in the time that I knew him, I learned that God can get glory out of even the most unlikely characters. And my job, my job is to bring that glory back to God. And that realization has helped me even when I'm not doing missions work. How many of you guys have ever been cursed out by somebody on your job? I'm the only one. All right. Well, if you've been cursed out by somebody on your job, God has some glory in that person. How many of you have someone, a friend or a family member who refuses to get their life back together? God has some glory in that person. And your job is to bring that glory back to God because you are his missionary in that situation. And I have a little bit more to say, but I see that it's time to let the Sunday school students and teachers go, so I'll let you guys go. See, the ultimate goal of missions is not saving souls or helping the suffering or righting injustice. The ultimate purpose of missions is bringing God glory. Because somewhere out there in the world, at this very moment, maybe it's here in Cambridge, maybe it's in Honduras, maybe it's in Haiti, maybe it's in Liberia or Romania or Indonesia or China, Somewhere out there, God is being deprived of glory. And we get to go and bring some of that glory back. And if we need an example of what it means to be a missionary, to be on mission, we need look no further than God himself. Because the God we serve is a missionary God. When we were sinners, when we were separated from God, when we were taking God's glory and devoting it towards our own idols, God himself came to bring that glory back. You see, Jesus, when he came to earth, he he told everyone, he preached sermons about lost children and lost sheep and lost coins, And he told everyone who would listen about the celebration, the praise, the glory that would result when all of those things were returned home. And ultimately, he sacrificed his life in order to bring all this glory back to the Father. Jesus died to make a bridge between us and God. He died to make a way so that our lives might bring God glory. And because of Jesus, because of what he has done, we are part of God's mission. We get the chance to bring him glory. And the one thing, indeed the only thing we can do to pay him back is to try to fulfill that mission, to bring God glory. And we do it not because we are good. We do it not because the people we serve deserve it. We do it because Jesus is good and Jesus deserves it. Jesus died for us.
and he deserves every bit of the reward for that sacrifice. And his reward is glory. Amen. Amen.